Well, good evening. If you'd uh, take your Bibles and turn to uh, John chapter 21, the Gospel of John chapter 21. Uh, just spend a few minutes together tonight in the Scripture. Um, Jim's already mentioned the, the uh, Melons and Gourds coming up, October the 28th, new members class. Uh, if you haven't been through the new members class, it's not an obligation to join. You're under absolutely no obligation. But it does give um, the National Enquirer version of Gracie Van gives you ample information to make a prayerful decision about whether or not the Lord's calling you to be a part of the fellowship and ministry that exists here. So those just two brief announcements. Uh, John chapter 21. There's a man by the name of Fred Brito, whom some believe is the, is the ultimate, the consummate con artist. He's a, a remarkable gifted man, remarkable and gifted in all the wrong ways, however. He's worked as a, a doctor, a psychiatrist. He's been a, a Red Cross worker, a fundraiser. He's been a, a commissioner in California for the poor. Uh, he's been a, a mayoral appointed advocate for the poor. He's even been a, a Catholic priest in New Mexico and Arizona. A remarkable resume. But the most remarkable thing about the resume is, is what's not on it. There's not an ounce of truth in any of it. He's none of those things. Uh, that's why he's the consummate con man. He's parlayed himself and presented himself in a variety of situations, a variety of postures. Um, he has uh, used fake IDs, uh, phony references, um, bogus addresses, a spurious resume. And he's used all those things, those spurious sources of information, to gain admittance to some of the most prestigious and powerful circles out west. A remarkable story. None of the IDs were real. None of the references actually existed. In fact, he gave different names uh, as references and had all and different phone calls. And all those different phone numbers were forwarded to his cell phone number where he would pretend to be the person giving the reference. Uh, one name that he repeatedly used as a reference over the years was Harrison Winslow. It comes out of a movie. He just liked the person's name in the movie and decided that he would use that as a name for one of his reference. Uh, he was so smooth, so, so charming, so personable, so witty that many times people didn't really even look to the references. They kind of hired him and gained, uh, he gained admittance on the spot. Nothing on the resume reflected reality. Uh, what truly distinguishes Fred Brito, however, and the leading role that he's played since 1974 is the fact that he's been a prison inmate most of those years off and on. Twelve convictions, served 15 years for fraud in various forms. Uh, the truth and Fred Brito are not even warm, close friends, uh, personal friends. They're distant acquaintances. There's nothing real about Fred Brito's life, except that he's a con man, a liar, and a fraud. Identity theft's a growing problem in America. Uh, you're aware of that. Over $40 billion a year is chalked up to identity theft and everything associated with identity theft. The FBI indicates it's the fastest growing white collar crime. I recently heard on NPR radio as I was uh, coming to Gracie Van one morning, I know you have to listen to that through a filter, but they have such a variety of stories and so on in both morning and afternoon that some drug traffickers have switched over to identity theft 
because it's easier and when apprehended, they don't serve hard time. It's considered white-collar crime and they serve in a different prison environment. So it's actually become more lucrative and profitable for them. Well, you, you wonder, what does this have to do with John chapter 21? There are three names in the Scripture, three identifying names by which God's people are called. We're called pilgrims, for example. That is, we're people who are not at home in this life. We're just passing through. First Peter refers to us as sojourners, people who, who are not rooted and anchored here. We're looking in Hebrews 11, as Hebrews 11 says of Abraham, for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're called Christians in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. To the best of my recollection, the only place in Scripture by which we're designated or called by that name Christians, and it literally means of or belonging to Christ, by far and away the most frequent title affixed to those who know and receive and rest upon Christ for salvation. The most frequent identifying name affixed to them is that of a disciple used over 200 times in the Scripture. It's the identifying name of all those who genuinely trusted and received and rest on Christ, have rested on Christ as He's been freely offered to us in the Gospel. And in John chapter 21, there are some identifying marks of those who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Real identifying, authenticating marks of those who know and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little bit of the context. This is a post-resurrection appearance of Christ. It is, in fact, the third resurrection appearance of Christ. That's indicated in verse 15. We're really going to focus on verses 15 through 23, but a little bit of the background context I think is important. Peter has led six of the disciples. They're named in verse 2 of John 21. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, or he was a twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee. That'd be James and John. And then two other disciples uh, who, were, uh, who were together. And then Simon Peter in verse 3. Seven disciples. Peter, always the leader. He had a remarkable ability to lead these men, even if it was leading them in the wrong direction. He said in verse 3, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll come with you. And so he leads them in this overnight fishing trip. The remarkable thing about Peter is he's always listed first in every list of the apostles in the New Testament, and there are four of them. In every list, it always starts off with Peter as being the first. Rightly so, because when the question was asked, he was the hand that shot up, if he even raised the hand. He's the one that immediately blurted out the answer. He's quick, he's impulsive, he's bold, he's brash, and at times he's weak and he's spineless and a contradiction, a paradox, if you will. Uh, it was uh, Peter who um, showed incredible boldness in Matthew chapter 16 when he says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remarkable spiritual insight. It was Peter in Matthew 14 who got out of the boat on a stormy night and uh, endeavored to walk to Jesus. They thought they'd seen a spirit or a ghost. And, and uh, I think it was Peter who said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come and What's the Lord going to say? No, it's not me, or yes, it's me, but stay in the boat. And he says, come on. And Peter's the one that scrambled out of the boat and began to walk to Jesus. It was Peter in Matthew chapter 26 that pulled out a broadsword when they attempted to arrest Jesus and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. 
he's mentioned in John's Gospel, his name was Malchus. And I don't think Peter was, was trying to scare the guy. I don't think he was trying to, to, to remove the ear. I think he was trying to part his hair right down the middle. But it was dark in Gethsemane, and he misjudged, and he missed. Peter was bold and impetuous. But he was also, in, uh, also capable of incredible blunders. I mean, imagine this. Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, I say you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood's not revealed this to you. And upon this rock that is your confession, I will build my church. And then Jesus in Matthew 16 goes on to say, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be given over to the hands of wicked men. I'm going to be scourged and beaten and crucified. And on the third day I'll rise again. And Peter is the one who stands up and says, Not so, Lord. Paraphrased, I rebuke you, Jesus. You're not going to the cross. And Peter tur- or Jesus turns around and says, Get behind me, Satan. The very same apostle. It was Peter who impetuously said on the night of Jesus' betrayal around the table, Jesus had predicted the betrayal and the disciples would be scattered. And it was Peter who said, All these other guys may scatter. All these other guys may run, but not me. I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to follow you right into prison. And then he goes a step further. And he looks around and says, In fact, I'm ready to die for you and with you. And Jesus says, Are you really? Are you really, Peter? Tonight I tell you before the rooster crows once, you're going to deny me three times. And it was Peter who denied him three times. And so here is the impetuous, bold, brash, sometimes inconsistent Peter says to these disciples, I'm going fishing, and they say, we're going with you. And so they they fish all night, professional fishermen. They fish all night and they catch nothing. And the next morning in verse 4, when the day was now breaking, just as the sun was coming up over the horizon, Jesus stood on the beach and the disciples didn't know that it was Him. And uh, verse 5, Jesus said, Children, do you have any fish? Do you? And of course they said no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they did and they hauled in a great number of fish. Later on the text in verse 11, it actually gives how many fish? 153, a massive net full of fish. And verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. John always, nearly always refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the beloved disciple. There's such a note of humility in that, isn't it? It's like saying, you know, I was his pick. And in a real sense, that was true. There was the twelve. Within the twelve, there was three, Peter, James, and John. It was John to whom the Lord said on the cross, Son, behold your mother. Woman, be, or, or, uh, woman, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. It was Jesus who transferred the care of his mom over to John. He was the beloved disciple. It was John who recognized that it was Jesus And old, bold, impetuous Peter in verse 7, when he heard that, that's all it took. That's all it took. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. You'd have to wonder, you've seen the movies, you know, the bathrobe kinds of things they wore. And uh, he stripped for work, which meant he was bare from the waist up, uh, clothed but just bare from the waist up. He puts on this garment and jumps into the sea. And you'd wonder, why in the world would you jump into the Sea of Galilee 
with that cloak on and swim, but that's what he did. He, you'd think, why wouldn't he just row to shore? But here's Peter. He's making a beeline to the shore to be the first to arrive there. And when they get there, Jesus has prepared breakfast. In verse 12, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, because they knew it was him. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Think about this. The Son of the living God resurrected in, in regal glory makes them breakfast and serves them. And immediately after breakfast, it's this post-breakfast, this post-meal conversation that you and I are able to draw from this text this night certain authenticating marks of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus turns His attention to Peter. And He says to him in verse 15, After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love Me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend My lambs. Verse 16, Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, Shepherd my sheep. In verse 17, Jesus said the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. The first identifying mark of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is simply that it's loving Christ. It's loving Jesus. It's loving Christ. Repeatedly, the Lord presents this question. In verse 15, He begins by asking, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, these may refer to the other six disciples. Jesus very well could have said... Simon, do you love me more than these? And with a sweep of the hand indicated to what or whom he was referring. Maybe he was referring to the sons of Zebedee. Maybe he was referring to Nathaniel from Galilee. That's one possibility. In other words, do you love me more than these other men? And maybe he's taking Peter back to the upper room in Matthew 26 when Peter is saying, these other guys will scatter these other guys will forsake you. But Jesus, I will not. I will follow you to prison. No, I will follow you to death. And so maybe Jesus is asking Peter and taking him back and saying, do you really love me more than these? There's a second possibility, and that is the antecedent of these could be a reference to the nets. It could be a reference to the fish and the boats. It could be a reference to his former Profession, do you love me more than the life I've called you from? Do you love me more than your former life, Peter? Do you love me enough to not go back to fishing? Do you love me enough to stay with me? There are nets in our lives as well. There are challenges for our affections as well. Do you love me more than approval? Do you love me more than people, including your family? In one of the most searching sermons that Jesus delivered, it's an ordination charge. It's in the context of sending the twelve apostles or disciples out in Matthew chapter 10. He says, heal the sick and, and uh, 
uh, heal and cleanse the leper and, and cast out the demons and raise the dead. And he says, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. And you're going to be persecuted from city to city. And you're going to be hauled before governors and magistrates. And the foes of your own household, or the people of your own household, they're going to be your enemies and your foes. Don't think that I came to bring peace. An enigmatic statement. Don't think that I came to bring you guys peace. But following me will disrupt your relationships. It will create a division and a cleavage. Sometimes even within your most intimate relationships. But that's what it will cost. Your love for me will cost. And he specifically mentions a son against a father, uh, a daughter against a mother-in-law. That one's not hard to figure out, is it? A son and a daughter. Now, we may not know anything about that, but I'm telling you there are plenty of people around the world today who do. It cost them their inheritance to follow Jesus. It cost them the family name and the family honor to love Jesus. It cost them plenty status and approval and reputation. And so the question, do you love me more than your former life? Peter, do you love me more than the approval of man? Do you love me more than father, mother, son, or daughter, your closest earthly relationships? Do you love me more than dreams and status and money and comfort and ease and pleasure? Do you love me more than your own life? Because behind the threefold denial of Peter was the fear of losing his life. He was in a hostile environment. Jesus was on trial. He had already been slapped and accused and reviled and spat upon. He had been arrested and hauled away by an enraged mob. And when the servant girl asked Peter, do you, do you know him? And Peter said, I don't. And later when the, third, the second probing question came, you sure you don't know him? I'm absolutely positive I don't. And before the rooster crowed, the third probing question came. Your accent, your dialect gives you away. You're Galilean. I can tell by the way you pronounce your long vowels. You're not from these parts. You're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? And Peter curses. He calls down a malediction on himself. In other words, may God strike me dead if I knew this man. So when Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me more than these? Do you love me more than your own life? You see, the rock-bottom essential mark of belonging to Christ is love for Christ. It's love for Christ that motivates obedience. It's not the rigidity, the, the intolerance, the inflexibility that in the minds of some people characterize, characterize Christianity. It's love for Christ that leads to obedience that's the evidence of affections that have been changed and stirred and made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the upper room, Jesus says three times to His disciples, and therefore by application to us, if you love Me, in John 14, you'll keep My commandments. John 14:21, He who has My commandments and keeps them, He's the one who loves Me. And He who loves Me will be loved by My Father. And I will love Him. I will love Him. And I will disclose myself to him. John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. In other words, there will be the closest, most intimate fellowship between me and those who love me—a love that's evidenced by simple obedience. 
the leading fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the first one. You know, there are nine of them, but the leading fruit begins this way, love. Love, joy, peace. And, and not just a horizontal love, but fundamentally a vertical love that then overflows horizontally into the lives of other people. And Peter writes a persecuted and scattered church in his first letter. He says, though you've not seen Him, you love Him. You love Him. And you're full of joy with a joy and a glory that is unspeakable. Jonathan Edwards, in his treatise on religious affections, said that the fundamental mark of new affections, that is, those whose hearts have been changed by the power of God's Spirit, the first fundamental signs of those new affections is love for Christ followed by faith. Love for Christ and along with that is faith. I had lunch yesterday with uh, five guys, four guys from Grace and it was a discipleship related and we were talking about this and that and and uh, uh, one of the things, uh, it, was a, it was in the context of the discussion about being a follower of Jesus. And one of the things that we said was that when our hearts were first awakened to love for our wives, we did some pretty bizarre things. And we started talking about some of those bizarre things. I won't tell you about mine, but I'll tell you all about theirs. And um, if you like, after this is over with for a little money, I'll tell you who they are. Uh, now, I won't tell you there, but we talked about various kinds of things. One of the guys um, had, <laughs> this was in the early 80s when cross-stitching was really big and when you could still safely walk the Hickory Ridge Mall uh, without being a heavily armed person or, or under, uh, you know, undercover coming from the parking lot to the mall. And there was a story in there, it was a cross-stitching story. Does anybody vaguely recall that when cross-stitching was big? Any of you ladies ever cross-stitch anything? Come on, get those hands up there. Uh, okay, what about this question? Any of you guys ever cross-stitch anything? Anybody uh, too big a coward, don't up to it? Well, one of the guys, two of the guys, actually, it was really big. Their, their girlfriends, soon to be fiancés, were cross-stitchers. And they actually went into the mall, went into that. They probably had on a wig and sunglasses and a ball cap and bought cross-stitching stuff and cross-stitched their girlfriends something as a gift. Pretty bizarre, huh? One of the other guys said, when my future wife, my, then my girlfriend, fiancé, was in college, I drove 90 miles to Auburn just to change a flat tire for her and turn around and came back. And every one of the guys said, you know, in, when love was first awakened in our hearts, we didn't bat an eye, we didn't blink, we were happy and delighted to do whatever because our affections had been stirred. And I can tell you that, that one of the evidences of your heart, your affections being stirred and an authentic mark of what it is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is love. Love for Him. A love that evidences itself in simple obedience. Did you notice when we read the text this evening that Jesus asked the penetrating question three times, Peter, do you love me? Maybe it coincides with Peter's threefold denial. There's a little play on words in the Greek text. For example, in verse uh, 16, Jesus uses agapio. He says, uh, uh, Simon, do you love me, agapio? In other words, do you love me without 
condition, constraint? Do you love me sacrificially? Do you love me with, with a boundless zeal? Peter, do you love me like that? And Peter responds in verse 16 with a different Greek word, Phileo, Lord, you know that I, I have great affection for you. A different word, a lesser word. And so Jesus responds again in um, the next verse. And he says, Simon, do you love me? Agapio. Verse 16, Peter responds again with the lesser word, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I am your friend and have great affection for you. You know that. And so verse 17, Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? But now Jesus changes the word to the same word that Peter uses. Phileo. Peter, do you really have great affection for me? And I think that's why Peter was grieved. Because now the Lord has, has lowered the expectation. Do you really love me like that, Peter? Do you really love me like that? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know that I love you. You know that I'm brash and I'm inconsistent. I'm impulsive. I'm impetuous. But you know that I love you. See, that's the fundamental, foremost marking characteristic of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love Him. We love Him. The second mark is in verse 18 in the first part of verse 19, and that is a willingness to sacrifice for Christ. Not just loving Christ, but sacrificing for Christ. Jesus, in verse 18, indicates the future manner of Peter's death. In extra-biblical literature, he, he references something here. You'll stretch out your hands. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. First part of verse 19, he was signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. The, in extra-biblical literature, the stretching out the hands is a reference to being crucified. It's being bound to a stake of wood. It's being affixed to a cross. And tradition says that's exactly the way Peter died. He was crucified upside down. And so maybe Jesus is saying, do you love me enough that you're willing to sacrifice everything, even your life for me? Do you love me like that, Peter? Will you sacrifice everything for me? I think this is behind Isaac Watts' great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When he says, When I survey the wondrous cross in which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Are you willing to lay down your life for me, Peter? The, the invitation to discipleship that Jesus repeatedly gives throughout the New Testament or throughout the Gospels, principally Matthew, Mark, and Luke, always has this idea of a costly fellowship, of a, of a costly love, a demanding kind of love. There's not an ounce of of easy believism. There's not an ounce of cheap grace in any of Paul's life, in any of Christ's calls to life and faith in Him. None. In fact, he says in Matthew's Gospel, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who's found his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, it's the, it's the compelling love for Christ that leads to the willingness to abandon all for Christ. 
It's the compelling love for Christ that leads you through the narrow gate in Matthew chapter 7. The narrow gate through which you can't bring anything. It all is forsaken and left behind in order to give all to Christ. It's like going through the airport, uh, the airport <coughs> security checkpoint. You don't go through there with your baggage. You don't go through there with the carry-all slung over your shoulder. You don't go through there with the laptop or the overnight bag. It's all laid aside and you walk through their single file. And it's that narrow gate that leads to life now and life hereafter. It's the broad gate that's the way to destruction. But through the broad gate, you can carry everything because there's no requirements or no demands. Do you love me enough to lay it all down, Peter? To forsake it all? We give up gladly the nets for an infinitely worthy person whom the Scripture calls a pearl of great price and a treasure buried in a field. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, You know the Ten Commandments. And he recites a few. And the young man self-righteously, brashly, arrogantly says, I've done all those. And the Lord not only uncovers the self-righteousness, but puts His finger on His covetous heart and says, Well then, have you now? Well then, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come follow Me. And the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he was not willing to part with goods and kindred and this mortal life also, as Luther penned, in a mighty fortress is our God. On the other hand, Paul had tasted of a greater joy in Philippians 3 when he recounts his resume. He says, I count it all but lost that I may gain Him. I count it as refuge that I may gain Christ in knowing in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings. Loving Christ. Sacrificing for Christ. And then third and finally, and very quickly this evening, the third mark that's found in this text of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus is following Christ. That's found in verse 19, the latter part, where Jesus says in an imperative tone, a command, not a, a suggestion, He said to Peter, follow me, follow me. Follow me without negotiation, without condition, without a contract. It is a simple but stunningly hard invitation to follow that is repeated throughout Jesus' ministry. In Luke 9, He says, If anyone wishes to follow after Me, let him deny himself, take up the cross daily, and follow Me. You know, self-denial is not palatable in a culture that is intoxicated with self-preeminence and self-preoccupation. It's just not palatable. It's just not a seeker-friendly gospel, is it? To say, take up the cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Taking up the cross is not a reference to your mother-in-law, however troublesome that may be. It's not a reference to your daughter-in-law, however troublesome that may be. It's not a reference to an overbearing, obnoxious, demanding boss, however troublesome that may be. It's not a reference to an assertive, aggressive, neighbor who's a thorn in your side. It's not a reference to any of those things. When Jesus says, take up the cross and follow me, it was a reference to death. To see someone going through the streets of Jerusalem with a patibulum or crossbeam on their back indicated they were on a one-way trip to death. A little bit of historical context. Eleven of the disciples were from Galilee. A man not a disciple by the name of Judas 
gathered up an insurrection to kick Rome out of Galilee. And the Roman general by the name of Varsus gathered his army, went in and very quickly subdued the rebellion. And he crucified 2,000 Galileans up and down every road leading into and out of Galilee. He staked them along the road so that everybody who went in and out of Galilee could see what would happen when you tried to rebel against Rome. They understood very clearly when he said, take up the cross. They wouldn't have thought about a bad job, a broken down car, financial adversity, bad family dynamics, a toothache. They would have understood that he was talking about death to yourself and death to your life. Following implied the end of your life on your terms. It was the end of self-directed living and being yoked together with Christ. Luke 9, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, will you really? I don't even have a place to lay my head. You sure you want to follow me? Another man to whom Jesus said, follow me, said, let me go bury my father first. It wasn't that his father was sick and ill and it was the right thing to do. It was, let me wait around until my dad dies and I can get my inheritance. Then I'll come. And Jesus says, no, follow me now. Another person said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first go home and say goodbye. And Jesus' response was, no one putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, the, the idea of follow me, the imperative, the command, it's a directional command. It's that Christ changes the direction and orientation of our lives. He called Matthew from the tax office. He called Simon the zealot from being a politically seditious operative. He called two sets of brothers from fishing. And the command was to follow me. Roy Regals was a walk-on football player at the University of California, 1929. He started for three years remarkably. played in the Rose Bowl against Georgia Tech, 1929. He was a lineman. He never got to touch the ball or run the ball, pass the ball or catch the ball. And a fumble fell his way and it bounced his way and he picked it up and began to run. And he ran as hard as he could go and he could hear the crowd cheering and the crowd roaring and the goal line was in sight when he was pulled down from behind at the one-yard line. He was running the wrong way. It was his teammate who tackled him. Later in 1964, some of you sports fans will remember this. Jim Marshall, defensive end, Minnesota Vikings, never got to touch the ball, pass the ball, catch the ball, fumble. He got it. He runs 70 yards and scores a touchdown. Hurrah! It was the wrong end zone. He had scored six points for the opposing team. You see, before Christ, we're running our own direction. And there's something about reorienting our lives when we come to Christ. And that's really what the Lord is saying here. Interestingly enough, Jesus' first recorded words to Peter in Mark chapter 1 was, Follow me. Follow me, Peter. You know what the last recorded words are of Jesus to Peter, John 21, Peter, follow me. His conversion began and his conversion at the end still had this simple command to follow me. Stunningly hard though, stunningly hard when we are self-controlled people. The identifying marks of a disciple are the result, however, not of our effort. It's not something we work up, merit, try hard to pull off. It's the result of a powerful spiritual birth that Jesus talks about in John 3. I would submit to you in closing this evening that prior to loving Christ, 
and sacrificing for Christ and loving Christ and following Him. Prior to all of those things, those are responses. Those are responses.